Welcome to the latest episode of the NIPTI radio interview series. I'm NIPTI staff attorney, Jason Weinstein. With us today to discuss current topics in ethics for prosecutors are the DASNY Ethics Committee Chairs, Richmond County Executive Assistant District Attorney Timothy Kohler and Oneida County Chief Assistant District Attorney Michael Kaluza. Let's talk first about a study recently conducted by an ad hoc DASNY group in which it reviewed over 600 cases in which the phrase prosecutorial misconduct was used in a decision of the appellate division. From that total, the group culled less than 75 cases in which it felt that the error rose to the level of real significance. Can you tell us about that survey and those cases? Well, the committee looked at a total of, I believe, 616 cases and ultimately from those cases eliminated all instances where the convictions were affirmed with the court refuting, ignoring, or holding harmless any alleged misconduct and came out with a little over 50 cases. I think the total number may have been 54 cases where some prejudice or some misconduct was expressly substantiated in the court's opinion. And of those cases, 50-some cases, 28 of, of those cases involved conduct during trial related to summation and or the examination or cross-examination of a witness. So a significant number, the largest percentage of those 54 cases that were examined involved some sort of a finding of summation error, very often tied to the examination of a witness or the cross-examination of the uh, defendant. So we looked at those 28 cases and started to notice certain commonality that a lot of those cases had. And a lot of those cases centered around a handful of issues that seemed to repeat from case to case. Many cases involved findings of the court that the prosecution had improperly engaged in burden shifting or vouching for a prosecution witness's credibility or directly or indirectly referring to a testifying defendant as a liar. Some cases involved denigrating the defense in some way, calling the defense a distraction or a fabrication. There were a few cases that involved suggestions that the defendant had engaged in other criminal acts, for example, cross-examination questions about the meaning of the defendant's tattoos in a particular case. There were a couple of cases on that. And those cases typically tied the uh, improper cross-examination to the fact that the prosecutor then addressed that subsequently on summation. And there were a couple of cases also where the uh, court felt that the prosecution improperly commented on facts outside of the record. For instance, that the complainant was from a rough neighborhood, facts that were not in evidence but were more opinion of the prosecutor. So almost all of the cases fit into one of those categories. You know, in looking at it, courts generally and traditionally, historically, have looked to not that one comment or that one error, but they've looked to the severity and the frequency of the alleged misconduct. And they also look at what the court did. Did the court take some sort of curative action? And how robust was that curative action? And did that conduct perhaps affect the outcome of the case? And they're doing all this to try to determine whether or not the prosecutor's alleged conduct had the effect of overwhelming the defendant's right to a fair trial. Many of these cases we looked at involve not just one of these categories, but sometimes two or three of these categories. 
And as a follow-up to Mike's comments, I think in the world in which we're living in as prosecutors and trying cases, that we shouldn't try to run up the score. This is a contact sport. We can strike hard, but they have to be fair blows, as the Supreme Court has told us many years ago. And it is a challenge sometimes to strike hard but fair blows if the other side perhaps is not interposing as zealous a defense as maybe the defendant or society as a whole should be expecting. And I don't think if we're cross-examining a witness and there's no challenge to that, no objection, that there hasn't been preservation of that. And then the prosecutor, I think, would naturally take away from that, that I can comment on that in summation, and that's fair comment. And I think the rules of engagement are shifting on that a bit. In preparing for today's podcast, Jason, I was doing some reading and I reread the Ashwall case out of the Court of Appeals, which is all the way back in 1976. And I thought there was a neat line in there that helped me participate in today's discussion. And it's summation is not an unbridled debate in which the restraints imposed at trial are cast aside so that counsel may employ all the rhetorical devices at his or her command. And I echo Mike's comment from a moment ago that I think courts are looking at not just one particular comment, although there are certain hot-button phrases that are going to get us into trouble, but looking holistically at the entire record, which makes sense. Questions on cross-examination where the court has sustained defense counsel's objection and the prosecutor goes on, that's just downright silly, quite frankly. Even if you don't like the ruling, that's the law of the case, and you have to move on to something else. And you're putting up a red flag in front of the bill if you continue to persist in asking those questions. I don't think that that's smart advocacy. When you get the ruling, whether you like it or not, you have to adhere to it. And you have to adhere to it not just in terms of the cross continued cross-examination, but you also have to button your lip on summation because you're clearly inviting trouble by making comment on that during summation. Just following up on what Tim said, it does seem that recalcitrance in the wake of being admonished by the court is something that the courts are going to take a very, very dim view of because they're looking in their decisions very often at what the court is doing to remedy the situation created by the comment. So certainly persisting after you've been warned, there are a few cases in which the court's language was very strong and very robust about their opinion as to the prosecutor's actions, and that was only exacerbated by the fact that the prosecutor had been warned and continued forward. It's interesting, and no surprise, that summation is a major topic that was looked at by the group. In Ethics Watch, the section about summation is always the longest. What is it about summation that is particularly dangerous for prosecutors? And do you have any recommendations about what prosecutors can do to try to reduce the length of that summation section in Ethics Watch? The world in which we live in is an adversarial system, and oral advocacy is something that most prosecutors enjoy the most when they actually get up in front of a jury and they try to lead them to a particular result based on the facts and evidence. There were times when I was actually trying cases where I'd get caught up in the moment. And somebody would say, hey, that was a great turn of the phrase, or, gee, why did you say that? And I almost didn't have a recollection of what I said. You kind of go into this altered state. That is both fun and dangerous. So I think you really have to think about your summation beforehand. That really sounds trite, but I think you do. And you do have to stay in the moment and react to what defense counsel is saying and not just read a summation that you prepared the night before. You are operating in a dynamic, fluid setting. But by the same token, you need to 
be mindful of what you're saying and don't go too far. And if you think you might be going too far or about to go into that area, always go with your first answer. And if your first answer is no, I shouldn't say that, then that's probably the better answer. We get emotional when we sum up and it's easy to go you know, beyond the bounds of fair comment. But as prosecutors, we're held to a high standard and we embrace that. But we really have to be mindful of what we're saying in the courtroom. To the extent that you'd like to engage in some rhetorical flourish, which sounds great when you're driving on the way home and there's nobody else in the car and you try it on yourself, that's what the elders in your office are for, experienced trial attorneys, who you bounce it off of them. And if you see them cringe, you kind of know you stay away from that. They are oftentimes a very, very helpful sounding board to give you some good advice about whether you should stay out of a particular area or if they say, well, you know, the third department is, doesn't like that anymore, why take a chance? Why do a do-over? Why have to bring your witness back in in a year and a half on a do-over? We do have to be cautious. Passionate advocates, but we need to be cautious. I think that's very true. Many of us tend to regard summation as the crowning jewel of our practice. And there's a, a natural resistance to wanting to try out your summation ideas or even perform your summation in front of other people. There's an innate feeling that doing so and not having a big reveal at the end will somehow take some of the dynamism out of your performance. And I, I think that's really a, a dangerous way to proceed because you're much more likely to stumble over tripwires that perhaps can be caught by other people, other more objective ears that are listening to the ideas you're going to unleash on summation. I mean, ultimately, it's a creative process. It engages both our analytical skills and our rhetorical skills. Uh, so it is a dangerous time for a prosecutor because it's very easy to go over the line, and especially in the area of vouching for witness credibility. I mean, ultimately, in most of those cases where there was found to be an improper vouching, the prosecutor went one step too far, pointed out all of the things that perhaps corroborated a witness's testimony, but then went that extra step of expressing a personal opinion about that witness's credibility. Uh, and to the extent that you can practice this beforehand, you can walk back from that line when you have input from other people. It's also important to be thoroughly prepared and not be speaking off the cuff when you deliver your summation. It's much more hazardous to speak off the cuff. And that's not to say you want to get up and read. That's the surefire way not to be at all dynamic. But you certainly want to have an outline and you want to have the issues crystallized and basically what you're going to say pretty firmly set before you rise to give that summation. The other thing that's important on summation is that you have to remember that you have just sat through the defendant counsel summation. And you may be annoyed at some of the things you've heard. You may feel uh, a need to respond, if not in like kind, but maybe even to, to uh, uh, completely invalidate what that person has said. And that can also bring you perilously close to denigrating the defense by labeling what they have said in a way that a court finds disparaging. Ultimately, courts are looking for pervasive patterns of misconduct throughout the summation. But there are you know, times when only one or two comments can get you into serious trouble. I'd like to ask you about something that came up in the 2016 Ethics Watch Top 10 Ethics Takeaways. There was a case from New Jersey, Robertelli versus the New Jersey Office of Attorney Ethics. This was an opinion holding that attorneys who improperly contacted an opposing party in a suit by having a paralegal friend him on Facebook can be prosecuted for disciplinary rule violations. I realize that this involved a civil matter, 
but I think it's just as applicable for criminal cases. I'm wondering if you've heard of any similar issues arising in criminal cases in New York, or whether you're aware of any guidelines about issues like this or others involving the use of social media. We are in the process of drafting a policy in that regard, and I had the opportunity to review what Mike had sent me, Oneida's policies in this regard. Under the rules of professional conduct, number one, I can't, Mike can't, have contact with someone who's represented by counsel, the so-called no-contact rule. That's black-letter law or black-letter rules of professional conduct. I can't have somebody else make that engagement as my, as my agent, if you will. I can't have one of my investigators make that contact. That is a separate prohibition under the rules. If I can't do it, I can't delegate that to somebody else to do it, to sort of launder that conduct and navigate around the rules of professional conduct. I, as an attorney, can't misrepresent myself to another party. So I can't create a fictitious identity to engage somebody online, nor can I have an investigator do so for the purpose of engaging the other side. So those are, in the brief minutes that we have left here, Jason, some big ones that I think in this age of explosive social media use that we have to be careful about some of the basics. And if you look at the rules, uh, you'll see that in black and white. That's stuff that we can't do as prosecutors. As lawyers, we can't do that, but particularly as prosecutors. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. There is, for some reason, a disconnect among many people between things that you do in person and things that you do online. And from the standpoint of the disciplinary rules and from the standpoint of most offices, I think they're precisely the same. Our office policy specifically provides that we don't recognize a substantial distinction between public behaviors, words, and actions done in person and public behaviors done electronically online through the use of social media. And so we train our assistants to take special care in their commentary even though it is within the realm of their private lives, not to do anything. When the late weight and prestige of the district attorney's office to, for example, a private dispute or cause or any matter really not within the province of our office's duties, it's a difficult thing because so many people are so very much involved in social media. But the best rule is the simplest rule, which is all those things that govern your conduct as attorneys, the special rules for professional conduct for prosecutors, as well as the general rules of professional conduct for attorneys. All of that applies in equal force when you're sitting in front of a keyboard. And, you know, we see occasional painful news stories around the country of what happens to prosecutors who forget that. Thank you, Tim and Mike, for joining us today on the latest episode of the NIPTI Radio Interview Series. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. 